admission that his life really is pathetic and he really is wasting it. I mean, maybe this scene really isn't that funny after all, is it? I mean, maybe it just kind of strikes a nerve or touches a little too close to home. I mean, the reality is, is we all wrestle with these things. You know, it looks differently depending on what season of life we're in or our age or our circumstances, but we all wrestle. I mean, for example, the, the teenager is wasting his life until he finally gets out of the house and gets to college, right? And then the, the, the college student is wasting their life until they finally get out from drowning under all the, the sea of papers and tests and exams, and they get in the real world and get a real job. And then the one in the, in the real world who has the real job feels like they're treading water because they can never get that elusive promotion or get that desired income level, right? I mean, you have, you have moms with young kids who are struggling to find meaning in the endless cycle of diaper changes and feedings and grocery lists and laundry, and then you have the moms whose last kid leaves the house and they're at home wondering, what now, right? I mean, you have single people who long to be married and have families, and then you have people, you know, couples who have families who fight the temptation not to longingly look back to when they had less responsibilities and their lives were less complicated. I mean, we all wrestle. Young people deal with the angst of, what am I going to do with my life? And midlifers soul search and flirt with doing something reckless or something radically different with their lives. And then when we're retirees with more years behind us than we have ahead of us, we fight that quiet fear and despair that we did indeed waste our lives and it's too late. And what legacy are we going to leave behind? We all wrestle with those kinds of things. And the question is, is what are we using as our measuring stick to measure these things? I mean, where do we get the criteria for whether our life is meaningful or who or what determines whether it was a waste or whether it was fulfilled? I mean, who defines what it means to be successful or what our legacy ought to be? I mean, last week... We looked at the Beatitudes, Jesus defined these things for us. But it's usually kind of caught us off guard, right? He turns our world upside down. You, you want to have meaning, purpose, you want to know what success is, here it is. You know, you are your kingdom citizens, and your, your purpose is to manifest lives of kingdom righteousness. You want to be blessed? Okay, here are all these things that will never appear at the top of anybody's, you know, successful habits of successful people list. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Mourn. Uh, be poor in spirit, peacemakers. And then there's the peace de resistance from Jesus, right? And you're going to be persecuted and rejected because I was. And you just, you feel the weight of those things. And I, I, you find yourself thinking, you know, why do we have to go through all that? I, I mean, why didn't God just zap me up when I became a Christian, take me to heaven? I mean, wouldn't I live out the Beatitudes perfectly there? I mean, why, why are we here? Why did he leave us here you know, why am I still here? Well, in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, which is our text today, Jesus is going to answer that question for us, as well as a couple of others. Why are we still here? Because we are to be redemptively driven. How are we to be redemptively driven? By being uniquely visible. Why? Why are we to be uniquely visible? To be humbly reflective. So if you'll turn to me, we're going to jump in here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and I'll read them. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please pray with me. Father, I'm always amazed when I get up here at the privilege of, of, of preaching your word and the responsibility of it. And I pray that nothing would come out of my mouth that is not aligned with your word. And I pray for all of our hearts, including mine, that the truth that we talk about today would sink deeply into our hearts and not just, not just fill our heads with knowledge or firm knowledge we already have, but that would change us, that that truth would change us and would make us different from this day forward. And I pray that knowing that whatever happens, you have, you have done it this morning. And I pray in the name of the one who has done it all for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I, I said, you know, we, we are to be redemptively driven. Why are we still here? Well, the bigger picture is, is because the God of the universe, though the world he created and declared very good, is now stained with sin and corruption and fallenness. Though human beings who were created in his image, were created in righteousness and holiness, now all rebel against him and pursue instead wickedness and evil. Though all we deserved was his punishment and his wrath, this same God in his compassion and his mercy and his love and his grace ordained that this fallen world would be restored and that he would save some from the, from the wrath that they rightly deserved. And this same God also ordained that he would use his disciples, his people, in his redemptive drama. That we would be the ones who would be his agents of redemption and reconciliation in this fallen world, in this lost world. And this is the context for this passage uh, when Jesus calls us to be salt and light that God has sovereignly chose us to use us to reach a lost world. I mean, first Jesus tells us that we're the salt of the earth. Have you, uh, have you ever been on a low-sodium diet? Because I can tell you, I have, and it stinks. Boy, it's, it's hard to even enjoy food anymore after a while. And you're just, you struggle to find, you know, some other seasonings or some combination of seasonings to take the place of the salt, but you just can't just can't replace that flavor of salt, right? And, and that's, you know, that's what the world is like without Christians. I mean, if we're, if we're all honest, whether we're Christians or not, we know that this fallen world has no flavor. And we try and pursue all these other things to kind of season it, right? But nothing ever seems to satisfy the divinely created palate that we all have. See, Christians, are, we're here because we remind the world what crucial ingredient is missing, right? We remind a godless world that we were created to, as Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good, that we were meant to hunger and thirst for righteousness and not feast on a banquet of sin and death. So as, as salt, we, we flavor the world, but we also preserve it. You see, that was one of the big reasons, one of the big uses of salt back in Jesus' time was to preserve meat. You would rub the salt into the meat and that would help keep it from spoiling. So part of God's grace to this world is that he keeps us here to preserve the world, to help 
fight off the continued corruption, to help prevent the further moral decay. I mean, let me ask you, can you imagine what this world would be, what it would be like without Christians? How quickly it would spiral into utter depravity and complete despair if left, left to itself. I mean, I look at, I think about how many Christians there are in America, and, and yet our own culture seems to be so quickly spiraling out of control. I think about all the time, you know, what, you know, when my daughters grow up, what, what are they going to be facing? What are they going to have to deal with? And, and that's, this is the reality, is even though the world mocks us, it resents us, and it even persecutes us, it needs us. It needs us because we keep it from being the worst it could potentially be and because we call it back to be what it was created to be. So we're salt, but we're also light. Jesus calls us the light of the world, and part of that is because, you know, we are in him. We're called to carry on his mission, and Jesus is the ultimate light of the world. You remember back in Matthew 4.16, he applies a verse from Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 2, and he says to himself, rather, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. Jesus is ultimately the light of the world. He says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as those who are his disciples, we are called to follow in his footsteps as that light. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, he says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And he says in Philippians 2.15, Paul exhorts us to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I mean, why do we have to be lights? Why do we need to be lights? Because apart from Christ, this world lives in utter deep darkness. And as fallen human beings, we are all blind. We're all deceived. So we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world because we are the bearers of the unpleasant but life-giving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we are the buckets of the cold water of reality because we're the light that dispels the deep darkness, God shining through us that envelops our world. So I ask you, are you redemptively driven? I mean, have you embraced that call to be an ambassador of God and an ambassador of his gospel to a dark and rotting world? And if, if you haven't, why not? You know, maybe, maybe a, a place to begin might be to, you know, ask yourself, how do you really feel about those who aren't Christians? Do we want to go there? <laughs> I mean, do you really care about them? Or if you're honest, maybe they disgust you a little. Maybe they stir up righteous indignation. Or, you know, maybe you judge them as those who are just going to get their desserts, right? I mean, how much energy do you spend avoiding them or protecting yourself from them? I mean, the reality is, is there's not a single person in this room, including myself, who doesn't struggle with some of those attitudes. But the gospel reminds us of one simple fact, that the only difference between us as Christians and those who are not is God's grace. 
Are we any less deserving of God's wrath and punishment than anybody else? The answer is no. It's because of God's grace. It's God's grace that has taken the scales from our eyes. It is God's grace that has given us the faith to believe in Christ. And it's God's grace who for some mysterious, sovereign reason has chosen to rescue wretches like us. That is the only difference. So I I leave you with this. God has so demonstrated his love and his mercy and his compassion and grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. What are we demonstrating to that dying world? You know, maybe the fear of rejection keeps you from being redemptively driven. You're certainly not alone with that. I can tell you, I was in Melt the other night. Have you ever been to that that hamburger place on Market Street? And, um, you know, we've been there a few times recently. When you have a pregnant wife, you might find yourself in Melt, you know, once once or twice a month (laughs) or more. And I was talking to the cashier, and I was telling her about how we just had a baby, and she asked me the baby's name. I told her Mercy. And she asked me, oh, what a, what a pretty name. How'd you get that name? And I told her the story. Well, you know, we were at church, and there was a baptism, and, you know, Justice Gardner was being baptized. I thought it was Justice at the time. And I leaned over to Christine. I said, wouldn't it be cool if you had a son and a daughter named one Justice and the other Mercy, right? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? And that's how the name Mercy came up. But you see, I stopped there, and I didn't tell the rest of the story, because the rest of the story is the real reason we named her Mercy was because we needed a reminder every single day of the mercy of God found in the gospel. But she didn't hear that part. She didn't hear that part because I was afraid of what she was going to think of me, because I was afraid she was going to think I was a weirdo or something. So if it's fear that keeps you, you're not alone. And you're not alone if it's also tough to make it a priority. I mean, we struggle to find a time just to be with our own family, right? Never mind reach out to other people. But whatever the reason may be for not being redemptively driven, I I hope that these words will shake all of us up a little bit. This is off of a YouTube video from Penn Gillette. Have you ever heard of Penn & Teller? They're like this very famous magic... Uh, magic act, they're on TV in Vegas, all that kind of deal, and, and Penn Jillette is the pen in it, in the group, and he is a confessed atheist, okay? Keep that in mind as I read this. And I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, that is evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, oh, well, it's really not worth telling them this because it might be socially awkward. Um, How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Wow. Talk about a bucket of cold water, right? Why are we still here? Because the world 
needs us because people like Penn Gillette need us and because God has chosen to use us to expand his kingdom. And I pray, I pray that we would all repent of our hard hearts and that he would light the fire to live redemptively among the people of this world who do not know Jesus Christ. I pray that for all of us. Okay, I want to be redemptively driven, but how do I do that? Well, that's, my, that's the next point is we are to be uniquely visible. Let's hit the uniquely part first. Now, here's, here's, where, the, here's where the Greek grammar gives us some insight. You won't hear me pull out the Greek grammar very often, but uh, this, is, this is important because Jesus stresses that his disciples are unique in the way that he addresses them because what, what he, it's as if he's saying, you, you are the salt of the earth. You You are the light of the world. He is emphasizing that only his disciples, only they can be these things to the world. That only they and us are uniquely equipped to fulfill that calling. And the question is, is why? I mean, who is Jesus talking to? Is it the 12 apostles? I mean, I can understand that. They're uniquely qualified, right? They're unique. Well, well, no, no, he's not just talking to 12 apostles. He's talking to all his disciples, Now think about that for a second. I mean, he's saying this to a small, ragtag, motley bunch of insignificant people whose families probably think they're nuts for following this weirdo around, right? This group of nobodies, this band of ragamuffins, just like us. And he's telling them that they are the ones who have been chosen to carry the torch. But wait, whoa, what? They, don't, they don't have seminary degrees. They, they, aren't, they don't hold an office or a title like elder or deacon or evangelist. No, but just like us, they are all kingdom citizens, and that's what it takes to be salt and light. Why? You see, because as kingdom citizens, we are unique because we are not the same people we were before. By faith, we become kingdom citizens, and that's a gift from God. And by faith, we manifest the new kingdom righteousness. And that's what the Beatitudes is all about, manifesting the new kingdom righteousness. And we manifest that righteousness as God works in us because we are new creatures with new nature. So we're unique in the sense that we're no longer the people we were before, but we're also unique and different because this, this righteousness makes us so different than the ones around us who aren't kingdom citizens. See, ultimately, it's this kingdom righteousness, this glorious work of God in us that makes us salt and light. Because just like this new kingdom righteousness that is displaying itself in our lives, being salt and light is just part of our new nature. It just flows from us. You know, that's why Jesus says a couple of things about the absurdity of not of us not being salt and light. For example, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt in Jesus' time is not the same as our salt. When we get salt, it's, it's pure salt, and technically, salt chemically is a stable compound and it never loses its saltiness, okay? But Jesus' salt came from a salt marsh, or maybe as rock out of the ground, and it was almost always mixed with impurities. And sometimes what would happen 
is water would wash through the salt. It would dissolve the salt and leave all the impurities behind. So what you had left was something that looked like salt, but sure didn't taste like salt, and it was worthless. So Jesus is giving us a warning here to not let compromise impact our effectiveness so that we lose our saltiness. And he even points out the irony that the world who we try and pacify through compromising with it are the very ones who also recognize that we're worthless and have no use for us. But his main point also boils down to this, that it is, it is foolish and absurd for us who are salt by nature to be anything else but salt, to lose its saltiness. And that same principle applies to the light parts too. Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And you know, cities were either built on hills or mountains, sometimes mountain shelves. And it was hard to miss them during the daytime because a lot of times those cities were made of white limestone. So when the, when the sun shined the white limestone, it was really, really bright. And of course at night, all the people in the city had lit their lamps in their houses. So you couldn't miss it at night either because you saw all the light from everybody's lamps uh, shining on there. So the point is, is whether day or night, you can't miss a city on a hill. And it would be absurd to think that you could hide it. Everybody sees it. And Jesus also says, you know, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Well, houses in that time were usually one room. And at night, they would light a lamp and put it on a stand so it would give light to the entire house. So again, it would be absurd to light a lamp like that and put it under a basket. I mean, that's the whole point of why you lit in the first place was to light the house. Why cover it up and keep it from doing what it was designed to do by nature? And again, Jesus' point is we are salt and light. To be anything else would be absurd and against our new nature that God has given us. Okay, that's the unique part, Right? But what about the visible part? Well, I mean, part of our visibility is the fact that we are so different and unique because of, of, of what God is doing in our hearts. But there's another point to be taken away from this, and that is Christians are meant to be seen. I mean, right, salt can't flavor something if it's not mixed with the food. You can't preserve meat if the salt isn't rubbed into the meat and have contact with the meat. No one misses a city on a hill and everyone in a dark house sees the lamp that's been lit and put on the stand. As salt and light, we are to be seen by the world and we can't be seen by the world if we don't have contact with the world. So we are to be unique and we're to be visible. Well, let's, let's land the plane here, okay? Let me ask you this. Are, are you unique? I mean, if I were to go to your office and ask your coworkers, or I were to go to your neighbors, or if I were to go to uh, the Chick-fil-A, what would people say? Would they say that they notice that something's different about you? Or would they say, well, you know, so-and-so, he, he, he or she talks a good game. But, you know, in the end, except for them getting up early to go to church, I, I really don't see any difference in how they live their lives as compared to me. You know, I... I wrestle with this. I think about Jesus' words about rejection and persecution, and I think about Paul telling us in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
and I, I just think about all the Christians in the world, the millions of Christians. I, I noticed this in our, in our bulletins about the persecuted church this morning. There are millions of Christians in this world who are right now being arrested and tortured and killed for their faith in Christ. And that shakes me up a little bit. And I, and I, I wonder to myself, you know, I notice that the church in America really doesn't seem to be all that persecuted. And I think about my own life, and I don't really experience rejection all that much. And I find myself wondering, does, does this say something about us? Now, is it because that maybe those in the world may not see all that much difference between them and us. Think about that. My second question is, are you visible? Do you spend any time with non-Christians? Do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you have any contact with anyone outside of our Christian ghetto here? I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. There is... There's nothing wrong with how we minister to one another in, in the body of Christ. That is a good and precious thing. But let us not forget that we have been left here in this world for a reason. And that is to reach out to those who are lost. And the reality is, is that right now, people we know and people we don't know are dying in their sins. And apart from Christ, they face eternal damnation. Do we really believe that? And we're the ones who have been called to be salt and light to them. We're the ones that have been commissioned to reach them. And again, I pray that that commission would be our delight and not a burden of obligation or guilt. I know you know what I'm talking about. I pray this for you and I pray this for myself. I pray that we would repent of our fear, our complacency, our contempt, or whatever else is keeping us from seeking out unbelievers and loving them enough to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. I mean, we're to be salt and light because God will use us to reach the lost. But there's another why behind us being salt and light. And that is because it brings God, it brings God glory. And that kind of brings me to the, the third point, that we are humbly reflective. Now, we're humble in the sense that we know it's not about us. It's not about us being praised or recognized as being great people. It's not about getting more notches on our evangelist belt. You know what I'm saying? It's about getting, bringing the glory to God and the praise that is rightfully his. So the humble part refers to our orientation and motivation in being salt and light. But we are also reflective, not because we all just sit around and think about these things all the time, right? That's not what I mean by reflective but because we bring glory to God by living lives of salt and light that reflect his righteous character and his will for the creatures that he has created in his own image. Now, again, these things should be kind of intuitive for us, right? I mean, if you think about the role of salt, you realize that it's not about the salt. 
If you order a steak and you throw some salt on your steak and you take a bite, you know, the first words out of your mouth aren't, wow, that's great salt, right? What do you say? Man, that's a good steak, right? The whole point of salt through its flavoring is to call attention to what it's flavoring towards. And Jesus makes this even plainer about us being light in verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, it's not about us. It's not. When people see our light shine, when they see our good works, they're led to give praise and glory to God. Now, we know a lot of times they're led to give praise and glory to us. And I'm going to say to you, when that happens, you, you need to set them straight. You need to tell them and remind them that whatever they see is not from you but from God. Humbly explain that you are simply reflecting God's glorious work that's being done in your heart. Give credit to whom credit is due. I, I love this, this little pithy comment by Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 where he reminds the Corinthians, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do we have that we have not received? So when they are tempted to praise you, you remind them that it doesn't come from you. I've received this. And here's the thing. If you do that, God in his own sovereign choosing, he's going to use the light of your good works as they shine to lead another person to repent and put their faith in Christ, to add another disciple of the kingdom. See, that's kingdom expansion. It's spiritual. It's God's rule in the hearts of men and women. And you see, the more disciples they are in the kingdom, the more worshipers there are in the kingdom. And the more worshipers there are in the kingdom, the more glory and praise is going up to God. Now, again, there may be a question that pops into your mind at this point. Well, what if, you know, what if people see my sin? I mean, what if I let them see my sin? Doesn't that kind of impact God's glory? And I love that question because it gives us an opportunity to, to maybe embrace a different paradigm than we're used to, to, to thinking. I mean, the reality is when it comes to interacting with, with people who aren't Christians and with each other, I might add, you know, we feel like we have to hide our sin or pretend like it's not there, right? As if, as if everyone else can't see it anyway, most times. You know, what will people think if they really knew what I was like? You know, it would hurt our witness and, and the cause of the gospel if people really saw how I was. Not to mention it would also hurt our pride, right? But what if, what if we let our light shine through the good work of repenting well? I mean, what if instead of working so hard to maintain our whitewashed exteriors, we just admitted to people who weren't Christians that were messed up. I mean, what if we just owned it when we wronged them and we, and we repented and we asked their forgiveness and we used those situations to point to our need and their need 
of the gospel? What if we did that? I mean, do you think God might receive praise and glory in circumstances and situations like that? The uh, other day I was on a phone call with an IT rep, and you would think as an IT former IT person I would know what I was going to be dealing with, but um, I'll be honest with you, it was not a pleasant call. I didn't like the way I was being treated. He was uh, pretty condescending, and, and my New Yorker came out, and I told him so. <laughs> right? And about midway through the conversation, I got really convicted. Not because what I said didn't need to be said, because I think it did, but the way that I said it was awful. It was just awful. So I, I sucked it up, and I, I owned it, and I, I apologized to him for, for how I had treated him. And of course, I got very little response uh, from him. But what if God used that? He knows he's talking to a pastor, right? Well, what if God used that to plant a seed? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But whatever the case, this I do know is, is that even though, you know, my pride was hurt and I felt like a fool doing it, God was pleased and God was glorified by my humbly, my rare moment, and I do mean rare moment of humbly reflecting my need of the gospel and my own fallenness. So I guess what I want you to walk away with at this point is bring God praise and glory by humbly reflecting Him and kingdom righteousness through the good works that you do. Let your lights shine so that people can see them and give praise to God. But, you know, when you don't do such a hot job of that, and there'll be times when you don't, many times, Remember that all is not lost. And bring God praise and glory by repenting well, by displaying, by humbly displaying your need and reflecting his love and patience and compassion and grace that's found in the gospel. Now, I'm going to finish this, this morning by sharing some stories of famous Christians that I know you've all heard of. And I'm doing this because I want, to, you know, I want you to be inspired by their, their famous examples and impact for the kingdom, okay? For example, first there's Jeremiah McGillicuddy. You've all heard of him, right? He was that famous English teacher, high school English teacher, who challenged a student that his paper that he wrote against Christianity was, uh, was unfair and that the arguments he used were straw men or easily toppled. Oh, and, and then there's Jim West... Come on. Well, Jim was a college student who decided to ask one of the guys that lived in his suite to go to a, some dorm meeting with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or something like that. Oh, and then there's Steve Angle. Now, come on, you've heard of Steve Angle. I mean, he was the InterVarsity staff worker that actually held that dorm meeting, and he was the one that challenged the students there that they all had a void in their life and that they were pursuing all these other things to fill it when what they really needed was Jesus Christ. Okay, Ralph Wood, professor, college professor of religion, taught a class on the Lord of the Rings, got one of his students to start asking questions about the Christian faith again, spent hours in his office answering that student's questions. Jarring anything? How about Charlie Barham, Craig Kaplowitz, Mark Mendenhall, 
These were guys who were praying for some guy they knew that he'd come to know the Lord. Uh, all right, I, I know I'm going to hit a home run with this one. Here's a man that needs no introduction, okay? Clint Dowda, okay? Clint Dowda is this Christian guy. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. He actually asked an unbeliever to be his college roommate, a known partier. Can you believe that? And on breaks, he took him home to meet his family and hang out with him. And he gave him books to read about Christianity. And you know what? One of those books that he gave him had such a huge impact that that guy gave his life to Christ after reading one of them. I mean, certainly you've heard of these people, haven't you? I mean, come on. Well, I doubt that any of you have heard of any of those people. But you know what? I have. Because those were the people that God used as salt and light to bring me into the kingdom. I mean, Mr. McGillicuddy, he could have just given me a crafty grade and handed my paper back, right? And Jim West, he could have been like, oh, that could be so awkward to ask him to that dorm meeting. Mm. Or, you know, Steve Angle could have been like, oh, gosh, you know, that, I'd love to do that dorm meeting, but I, I just, my schedule's so packed, I just can't. Or Dr. Wood could have said, you know, Tom, I'd love to sit and talk with you, but I've got to get off to a meeting right now. Why don't you go to my door, my office door, find a slot and sign up, and we'll try and meet some other time. Or, you know, Charlie or Mark or Craig, they, they could have, you know, had the intention to pray for me, even talk about it, but just never seemed to gotta get around to it, right? And Clint, well, I can tell you this, my friends, it would have been a whole lot easier for Clint if he had just found a nice, safe Christian roommate that year instead of me. <laughs> but the fact is that they didn't. They didn't. They reached out to me redemptively. They were uniquely present and visible in my life. They humbly reflected the God that they loved and served to me. God worked through them. He used them. And because of that, there's one more disciple in the kingdom today. There's one more disciple giving God the praise and glory that he rightfully deserves. There's one more person trying to be salt and light to other people. I mean, the reality is these folks are nobodies by the world's standards. They'll never be famous. Christians will never be reading their biography. Chances are, in a generation or two, even their own families won't remember who they are. But they're famous to me and they're precious and valuable to God. So what could God use you to do? Who or what do you use as your measuring stick? What really gives meaning to your life? How do you define success? What will be your kingdom legacy? I pray that Jesus Christ would turn our worlds upside down so that he could use us to turn a fallen world right side up. Please pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for your word, for its challenge, for its comfort, for its truth. And once again, I just pray that you would be glorified through what we've talked about today.
And I pray that you would use it to stir us up towards kingdom recruitment and expansion. And let whatever we do be done with the motivation in the heart that longs to bring you praise and bring you glory and to bring other precious disciples into the kingdom. I pray all these things in the matchless name of the one who allowed himself to be hung on a cross and pierced and broken and his blood shed and his body broken in order that there might be a new kingdom and in order that we might be subjects of his kingdom. I pray in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear the benediction this morning from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, I just want to make sure, sorry. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal 